It's Wednesday, mates. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, friend. Happy Wednesday and happy almost February. Where has the month of January gone? It feels like it has flown by and that feels particularly ironic to me as I am speaking today about a specific moment that I can remember so clearly from five years ago. It was April 2015. I was in Milan, Italy, over there to visit an Italian guy I was dating at the time and he was off at work and I was by myself sitting at a cafe. I mean, I just can picture where the cafe was. And I was drinking a cappuccino and I was reading a book that would go on to change my life. And that book is Essentialism. In the last five years, I've read this book four times. The first time I read it, I remember having the feeling that I wanted to start underlining things, but I realized I just wanted to underline the entire page. And so I had the wisdom to not underline anything and just accept that everything in this book was so powerful. That is how I knew I read it four times because the first time I didn't underline it and I am now on my third color of highlighter, which is a level of nerdiness I have achieved with no other book on my bookshelf. I don't think there is any other book that I have read four times. And now that I am rereading it again, I am just being rocked by it afresh and underlining things that I didn't before, having things stand out at me. I am reading one page and then sitting for five minutes just staring deep off in thought. And when I mentioned this beautiful book of essentialism to you on Instagram stories, 70% of you had not read this book. And that made me realize, okay, this is an obsession that I have not shared with y'all. And it's it's one we need to be all be on, friends. So what is essentialism? Let me quote from the book, the way of the essentialist is the relentless, disciplined pursuit of less but better. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of less. It's making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at your highest point of contribution. And I, Hillary, would add, at your highest point of joy. It's asking, if I could truly be excellent at only one thing, what would that be? So there's a chart on page eight, which I'm going to flip to now. I feel like I'm reading you a bedtime story now that I actually have a book in front of me I'm reading out of. So let me just give you a few examples of a non-essentialist versus an essentialist. A non-essentialist says, I have to. An essentialist says, I choose to. Reacts to what's most pressing versus pauses to discern what really matters. Feels out of control versus feels in control, feels overwhelmed and exhausted versus experiences joy in the journey. And can I get an amen for everyone who feels overwhelmed, exhausted, and in certain ways out of control of certain aspects of our life? I think that is so prevalent. And this concept of doing less but better really in both the book and my application of the book is on a macro and micro level. So the original intention by the author, Greg McCowan, was to explore why high achievers weren't achieving more. And he comes back again and again to this phrase of your highest point of contribution. The reality that as we have more opportunities in our career, we then become more spread thin and more spread out. 
I remember noticing this years ago when I very first started my business. The This was nine years ago. The reality shows that I was watching at the time, the Bethany Frankel, Tori Spelling, Rachel Zoe, I became aware that people are going to keep giving these women more opportunities. Would you like to be on the cover of a magazine? Do you want to write a book? Do you want to have a product line? Do you want to have a TV show? Do you want to have this and this and this? And they're given so much opportunity and it all seems good and it's all going to be fun and it's all going to make the money and all of this that they've said yes to so many things that they have lives that make for really good reality television because they're completely exhausted. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. They just, they're so stressed out. There's always drama going on. And I had a sense of, I love the diversity of things they're getting to be able to do, but I want a life that would make for really bad reality television. <laughs> like, I want a life where you're like, oh, yep, she's just, uh, she's just hanging out having a positive conversation with another woman, just watching the sunset. Like, <laughs> that's not what happens on reality TV, right? It's like, there's a million things that they're juggling. And that happens so often amongst high achievers because there is more opportunities that are being given to you. Now, the book is really written for the corporate, I wouldn't say the corporate audience, but his world is coming from Stanford Business School, being a consultant inside corporations. So a lot of what he looks at are people that you might be a senior vice president at a company, but it's not your company. So you have a boss to report to, and then you have other people that are going to ask if you'll be on meetings and if you'll head up projects and if you'll reply to this email or whatever. And so he's really looking a lot in the work context. But I think for all of us, we all have that sense of what is my highest point of contribution, the, the work that I am doing in the world, what is my purpose? What is my legacy? What is my mission? So how, whatever that is for us, how can we do that more? How can we do one thing brilliantly? How can we truly be excellent rather than ending up a bit mediocre and lukewarm because we ultimately spread ourselves too thin and try to do too many things? The micro side of this is why do I have too many things on my to-do list? <laughs> why am I still struggling to make X happen in my life. It's just on the daily basis when we are stuffed too full, when there's too much we are trying to make happen from our to-do list in our day, in our week, in this month. And as I added, what's going to bring me the most joy? That this isn't purely about my macro fulfillment and accomplishment in the world, but also just on a really small daily level how am I truly investing in the things that give me the most joy? And honestly, in many ways, this is elegant excellence, which is my vision. I shared in a previous podcast that we'll link below on how I want to live my life and run my business. I want that fullness. I want to be able to do things at an exceptional, excellent level. I want a life that is extraordinary and I want ease and white space, and breathing room, and gracefulness. And so this book truly is so aligned with that vision. And if you look around culture, it is so clear that we need both. On the macro level, when we look at causes of depression and anxiety, so much of those are about a lack of fulfillment and purpose and overwhelm and clarity in that. We care about having a 
purpose and meaning and legacy in life. Those are things that that we talk about as a culture that seem to just be important to human beings. And on a micro level, we like all those memes about, you know, you have the same hours in a day as Beyonce, aka if you were struggling getting things done, <laughs> everyone has the same 24 hours. But we would only like that meme if we're like, oh, all right, that's a good point. I really could be getting more done with my hours in a day. We are never bored anymore, right? We have so many things that we could constantly be saying yes to and constantly consuming. We are burnt out and liking all these memes about how we want more social plans. We want people to ask us to hang out, but actually then we just want to cancel all of them to stay home and Netflix and binge. Like we, yes, we're desiring more connection, but then simultaneously we just really want to do less. We want our lives to feel less busy. We want to be more, be less tired. We have more options than ever in this day and age, both on what we can do on a Tuesday night and who we can be when we grow up. <laughs> what we want to accomplish in the world is far more possible as are all the different things that we could be doing with our Saturday. So we need more wisdom in which to choose. And friend, I know that this is true for you because as I shared, I am being rocked and compelled afresh after five years of living this out. Being an essentialist is easy to say. It, it seems easy to understand, but it is very hard to actually do in practice. There are so many layers. You just keep going deeper. And that's a journey that I really want to encourage you to join me on wherever you are at the spectrum listening today. So what does this look like practically, essentialism? Let me give you some examples in my life, and then I'm going to share some of my favorite broad takeaway concepts as we think about how to fold this in. So some macro examples in my life. I won't talk too much on these because this really would apply more for my fellow entrepreneurs, and we've been talking about this a lot inside my Elegant Excellence Mastermind, um, and I know many of you listening here are not entrepreneurs and not running your own business, but just as an example for you to know how this really does impact running the business for me in that micro level and really thinking about what am I here to accomplish in my business, in my work, in my calling, in my mission. So sometimes that has looked like in one year, I went from having 13 revenue streams, 13 different products or courses or things that I was selling down to two. And in that year, we made six times the revenue. It was a very clear example, this was 2015 in my business, of do less and make more. And I had made that decision a few months prior to, that decision was made back in December, and I first read Essentialism in April or May. So that had already been a, a path that I was heading out, and I was already starting to see the benefits of that. There's something called the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 rule, that 20% of something in our life gives us 80% of the value, the return on investment. When we look at running a business, for example, really looking at where where is the the 80% of my revenue is probably coming from 20% of the things that I'm doing. 80% of the traffic, the people that are listening to me and my audience is probably coming from 20% of the work that I'm putting out into the world. So really getting clear on I actually could do less and instead double down on the things that are working best and truly make more. Um, after reading Essentialism, I then went through in 2016 a year of saying to my uh, CFO, 
I want to make the same amount of money this year, but in eight months instead of 12. I don't want to grow the business. I just want to get the business healthier. And I'm finding myself four years later in 2020 back in a similar space of that's my vision for 2020. I really want to, you know, think deep and make big shifts. It's this constant conversation that I'm having of so many ahas of just really reframing how could I do less? How could, okay, we made a lot of progress in the last four years and and those shifts really helped. Now what's the next season of depth? And I think that that is a question for all of us as we go out, go through life. We're going to have a a season of, okay, we our, our marriage got better. Now how can it get even better? My anxiety is better than it used to be. Now what's the next level of healing in that? I, you know, lost X amount of weight in in my healing, my my health journey. Now, what's the next thing in truly being a healthy person? And we keep going to that next level. And I just see that time and time again in my business. And this is as someone who is a, a visionary and a dreamer and a realist and a planner and has already been studying essentialism. And yet, when I re- reread this book in the last month, I just found all of these brand new ideas coming out and all of this new clarity because there's constantly another layer to the onion. And I've really been compelled by what is pulling me off track from my purpose. And as clear as I am, as wise as I am, as much work as I've done, I have just been blown away by the realizations in some ways looking back to, whoa, we kind of went down a path that wasn't really headed to what is most essential to me. We kind of created that product over there and that program over there. And gosh, I've got to go back and see how did that even happen? I've got to revisit. That really wasn't truly headed to my North Star. And that is why I know that it is so easy to get pulled off and so important for us to have these conversations, have other people in our life that have this vision, reread a book like Essentialism and come back to what is my true North Star from that macro perspective my purpose, my calling, my mission, my vision. And then on a micro level, I see this everywhere in my daily life. So on the one hand, it is in what I teach as a style expert. I have my ribbon and record method for organizing your closet. You can find that over on my IG stories. I have a whole series on that. But as we go through our closet, really what we're coming to is what is essential? You know, we I we all buy into that adage of, I have a packed closet and nothing to wear. Well, what in that packed closet is actually essential? Back to the Pareto principle, when I ask women, they usually say, yes, it sounds totally true that I am wearing 20% of my closet 80% of the time. I have my favorites that I go back to, and those really are essential. Now, if I cut the other 80%, I probably would feel uncomfortable right away, So instead, I kind of walk you through a process bit by bit to make it really clear as we do the ribbon and record method, all right, these things obviously are not essential because uh, three months have gone by and you still haven't worn them. So I think it's clear that the things that were essential were what you wore first. I shared in one of the very first podcast episodes about friendship, how I had made a list of six friends for a season. And I said, I'm going to work on investing in these women more. I'm going to text them once a week and check in. I'm going to, over the course of three months, try to have two different times when I see them one-on-one or in a small group. And some of those women 
it didn't really take off, so to speak. I just, and, but then I ended up meeting other women that kind of replaced them, again, so to speak, on the list. And for me, going down to a more essentialist list of who I was pouring into led to more depth in those relationships, not for all time. It didn't mean that that group of friends was going to be, you know, the tightest for the next 40 years. But for that season, I found more depth in those relationships by narrowing that list rather than writing out a list of 40 people that I was trying to stay in touch with. Last year, when Jeremy and I were taking, uh, we took a French class and then we signed up for the next French class. And halfway through level two, I quit. I just realized, okay, in level one, I knew enough that I wasn't really having to do homework. So I could show up on Mondays for class, and that was that. Now that we're in level two, I need to be practicing. I need to be reviewing. And that's time. And if I look at what is most essential, I'm still not writing my book. I'm still not going to the gym. French is not more essential to me than these other things. So if it's going to take even more time that I already don't have for these other things, I think I should just quit. And guys, I am so proud of myself for that because there are examples in the book about the fact that once we have invested financially in something, we then value it even more. So to have already paid for the French class, I can't get my money back on it, it is so likely that we would say, well, I've already paid for it, so I have to stick with it. But what, what value does it actually bring to your life? I've paid that money whether I go or not. So my continuing to invest the time now I'm just giving into a sunk cost bias rather than actually just pausing. When I read that excerpt from the page, it says they, they react rather than pausing to discern. I pause and I say, well, I already paid the money. So that actually becomes irrelevant now. Now it's just look ahead to the next four weeks. If you prioritize studying, what are you deprioritizing? And actually, if you had three extra hours in your week, what's the number one thing you would do with those? And study French was not the number one thing. So I just had to rethink about that. Now in 2020, I took French off the list entirely. And that has been a big personal goal for years. I, Jeremy and I want to live in France on and off throughout our lives. It is very tied to a, a lifestyle and a vision for the way we want our life to be. It's a very compelling desire. It's not just I want to say that I speak another language or it's going to make me sound cool or, you know, just this random idea. But it became so clear to me by this time when I was finally doing my Elegant Excellence journal, journal for January that there were just other larger pain points. And yet I'd really been choosing French last year. And I had to then ask myself, well, why was that? Did it feel more fun than going to the gym? Certainly. <laughs> um, was it easier and more obvious because Jeremy was also going to join. We were going to do it together. Sure. I mean, he's not, that's not couple time when I'm writing my book. I don't have an accountability buddy to help me get my book done. So if I have an accountability buddy in French, but not in gym or in book writing, well, sure, that seems easier now, right? Also, there was the idea that we were eloping to France. And that was a year and a half ago now that we eloped. But I can look back and say, okay, the story really in some ways started there. Yes, it started back on my sabbatical, going to France, wanting to learn French. Even started a little bit in this uh, in essentialism with him mentioning this family living in the south of France. But then it really dialed up a notch with 
We love France. We could elope to France. Let's learn French. We're going to kidnap these friends and take them with us. We'll be able to communicate. We'll do our vows to one another in in French. Um, And that's where this sort of it sort of jump started the vision. And I think that's so helpful to go back to at different times when we look at why did I choose this thing? Why did I get committed to it? And sometimes it's it's weeks of pondering that question as you start to get more ahas. Sometimes it's sitting down and doing a deep dive journal. Sometimes having a long conversation with your best friend or your partner and piece by piece kind of going back to how did I end up committing to French when if you actually just took a clean slate, there are other things that I would tell you are going to be more important to my happiness at the end of this year or are larger pain points that I beat myself up for. I feel disappointed that I haven't done. I feel guilty that I'm not getting to. And my final micro example from my own life is there are small groups that meet at our church. And that is something that Jeremy and I were planning on joining in this new year. And if you follow me on Instagram stories, you know that I am working on my new morning routine and my daily routine. I've been sharing that with you guys uh, most every day over there. And I've been sharing my exact schedule with you that I am working on and realizing that I just in the last couple of weeks here have moved my bedtime up a little bit more or the time that I start getting ready for bed. So now I have an alarm at eight o'clock is my first alarm that goes off to say, get ready for bed. What time does the small group start? Eight o'clock. Okay, well, those two things are in direct conflict then, right? So most of the time, what we will do is just say, oh, well, but in my head, I, I already wanted to go to this small group and and everyone in my world, everyone I'm following on Instagram or all the other moms or everyone in my family, or in this case, everyone in our church goes to one of these small groups. So I'm not even going to think about this. This is just the expectation. This is just the rhythm. It's just the appointment that's on the calendar. So it's really easy to then probably not even think through, but just be frustrated of, okay, I'm here, but I feel like I should be at bed. I wonder when this is going to this is going to end. I wonder if we can leave early. Do you think we can leave early? Hey, babe, babe, can we leave early? Can we just can we just sneak out at this time? Like you're trying to do both, right? You're trying to do both in your head rather than I need to fully accept if I go to this small group. It goes from 8 to 9. And by the time I get home, or sorry, it goes from 8 to 10. It's going to be 10.30. And therefore, I'm getting to, I am starting my nighttime routine two and a half hours later than what I know I need to be doing, what want to be doing. Okay, am I going to just be okay with that? I'm real, I get less sleep on Wednesday nights. Or I don't do my morning routine on Thursday mornings. Or I don't go to this thing on Wednesday nights. Like those are our only three options. But we tend to not want to have to make an option. We or make a choice between the options. We want to do both. And so we tell ourselves we'll kind of halfway do both. Like I said, we'll go, but we'll leave early or, you know, whatever. And then, but then I'm home and I'm frustrated that and the next day I'm tired and I'm behind and I'm not really owning the choice that I made. So this time I said to Jeremy, what are the two wins of small group? What are the two purposes of going to small group? One is community and relationships. And the other one is uh, sort of, personal depth and spirituality. You know, we're going to have deep, rich conversations about what the sermon was on Sunday. Okay, those are two things. Do Are both of those important to me? Yes. Relationships and my personal spiritual growth are both important to me. Okay, great. What are my other options for how to get this in my life? 
Is this the best option for me to get this? Well, one of the things that I've added to my mornings is, um, you know, having some quiet time to like do my prayer journal and I take notes in about the sermons on Sundays and like re- read through, go back through those. So it really is like my spiritual, personal growth quiet time that I want to have in the mornings. Okay, well, if I have to choose between that and doing it in a small group, which brings me more joy, which feels more impactful, which feels more essential, which feels that it is going to make me more excellent at, you know, whoever it is that I want to be. For me, it's very clear it's it's the morning time. Okay, so then if I'm doing it on Wednesday night, I'm not doing it on Thursday morning. So I'm making a direct trade-off. So actually, I choose the quiet time on Thursday morning. Okay, what about the community? We can go down that route. Like, you know, who are the people? What is that kind of community? Are there other ways that we can find community and build relationships that just aren't in direct conflict with my other stated priorities? Can we be hanging out with people on Friday night instead when I'm not honoring my morning routine on, you know, on the weekends? So when it comes to being essentialist, some of these are literally what is essential to me at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday <laughs> or what is essential to me about this this appointment versus this one. Some are what is essential this year in three years? You know, yes, I do want to learn French in life, but it is not the most essential thing to me this year. Um, I have other things that Jeremy and I have talked about that are essential to us, but they're not essential in the next three years. And then what is essential when I'm 90? Just what's essential in the big, big picture of my life and where I'm headed. That is why we cover all of this inside the Elegant Excellence Goals Journal. And we really walk through what is what is that big picture vision that we want to have ahead? What is our essential intent? What is our North Star? All the way down to, okay, what am I doing about it this week? And what could I be doing to get closer to the goals that really matter to me rather than just doing a lot of stuff in my life? So how do we do this? What are the tools to be a better essentialist? Honestly, read the book. <laughs> I don't push much. You will notice there's very few things that I'm like, everyone has got to do this. Most things I'm like, you're the CEO of your life. M- maybe you'll like this. Maybe you won't. Like, you know, wear your own style. Here's a TV show that I'm loving. But, you know, here's here's a little bit more about it so you know whether or not it's right for you. But no book has changed my life more than this book. And there are so many highlighted places for me in this book that I realized if I tried to cover it all in a podcast, this would just become the audiobook of essentialism, which I'm sure does exist, though I have read the, personally, the physical version. It's also one of the rare nonfiction books that I read uh, the hard copy. Usually I listen to nonfiction books on audiobook, but this one, like, I need to be underlining things and coming back to it. And also it's just a very easy read. It's not one of those, like, huge books where it's just kind of so scientific and you're like, I want to read this, but I'm not going to finish it. It is just written in a way that is super easy to actually fly through and finish. So instead, I want to A, inspire you to read it, B, encourage you in it, whether you have already or when you do, read it with what it looks like in my life. And then C, share some of my favorite takeaways lately to remind and encourage us wherever we are in the process of having read it. So I've got five of those to wrap us up today. Number one, you have to know what you want. You have to have a vision to aspire to in order to be an essentialist. There has to be introspection and self-awareness. 
I've heard from some people really saying like, man, the Elegant Excellence Journal is, that takes a lot of time. Like now that you guys have it and you're working through it. And it's like, yeah, it's not a fast process to fly through for most people because we don't slow down to do this enough. It feels heavy to be like, man, she's really asking me to think about my life and how this last year was and how it made me feel and what I really want in the long run and how I'm really going to get there. And so when we're not used to doing those, it takes a long time to sit there and process it. But imagine if you'd done all of those exercises a week ago, you could fly right through it, right? Like it's just that you haven't thought through it like this. Once you get that clarity, it becomes faster. And for me, I am a visionary and a dreamer, and I still sit down and spend so much time thinking every six months that I do the Elegant Excellence Journal. Because even though we just came out with the tangible full version this year, those the portrait section in the beginning, that's what you, what you do every six months, that's already existed for the last four to five years. 30,000 of you have already been through the annual class that I would the workshop that, that I would host for free on that each year and give us all those downloads to work through. So I've been doing that process for years. And yet, this year, finally, I felt like it was a little faster for me to get to clarity. And I think, one, that's because of of doing it. It gets a little faster every time as, as you go incrementally. And then, two, I did a lot of this work in the fall when I was going through these pages and creating it for you. So I actually now have done this full process every three months. So by the time I got here, I was even a little more clear because it hadn't been that long. So that is why I know that it is so important for us to sit down and do this. And if it takes you a long time to get those ahas, you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing it right. It's just that so few people actually do that. And we have to keep going back to it because life changes, you change, you've got new opportunities, you have more information. So every time I sit down to do it, if I look back at my pages four years ago, they they would have looked different. They wouldn't have looked necessarily night and day, but there would definitely be things on there where I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that I wanted to do that. Yeah, then I became more and more of an essentialist and I realized actually that's not that important. I just saw somebody else do it or it sounded like a good idea, but it's just not what's going to move the needle or you know make, make me the happiest. Essentialism mentions that the root of the word priority, prio, in, in Latin means one or first. It's a new invention that like as of the 1900s, I think he says that we made the word plural. The word priority inherently can't be plural. You can't have multiple first most important things. <laughs> Literally in the definition of the word, it means one. And I think in this culture, so few of us either, we haven't cast the vision and dreamed big enough. We are putting a ceiling on our dreams. We are holding ourselves back. We are downplaying. Well, I mean, you know, I want to raise like great kids, but I mean, it's not like, I just don't really have a dream in the world. Well, maybe that's your dream, friend. Like maybe that's your one most important thing. You're homeschooling those five kids, and that is your mission on planet Earth, is to raise like five epic humans. Don't, don't downplay that. That is your thing. But for, for someone else, it is, you know, the work, you know, I have a friend that their big goal is to eradicate sex trafficking. 
It is not at all what they're doing in their day-to-day work. Their goal is simply to make as much money as they can in high-paid traditional marketplace to then be able to donate incredible amounts of money to create a foundation that does this other thing. Some people, that's going to be your number one priority. And therefore, it that should be affecting it. Like your goal is, I want the highest paying jobs because I know what I'm going to do with that money. For somebody else, your priority is those five little kids that you are homeschooling. And great, then everything needs to come after that. But whatever it is for you, it is needing to have that vision and know what you were even aspiring to, to begin with. And if you missed it, go back and listen to episode 33 of the podcast, all about how to get to your dream and listen to that. We will link that below and it will help you. Number two, you have to choose between really, really, really good things in order to have great things. And this is what most of us just flat out won't do. Whether it's fear or scarcity, like I'm going to choose the wrong thing or fear of missing out, I'm going to regret that I chose this thing instead of that. But those are stories. Those are thoughts. You could also choose the thought, I I know in my gut what the most important one is. The thought could be, I definitely don't want to miss out on this, so I'm going to choose that first. Like it's focusing on the negative versus the delightful. Our brains focus on what am I missing by ha- by having to choose? What am I missing out on that I'm saying no to rather than on the delightful of what do I really want to say yes to? What do I really want to pour into? What do I just you know want to go big on? And if we don't choose, the reality is it gets chosen anyways. As McCowan says, it just happens by default instead of design. But a choice still gets made. Just You just didn't choose it. But there are no more hours in the day. There is no more money in the bank account. There is no more energy. There is no less hours you could sleep. Like We still are making choices about what we do with our time, money, hours, energy. He says, quote, we forfeit our right to choose. When we surrender our ability to choose, someone or something steps in to choose for us. And I love those those two words of we forfeit and we surrender. Because it strikes me that those feel so passive, like weak, unempowered, a victim. Like a victim has to just be like, I, I, I forfeit. I don't have any power here. You know, it's so unempowered to be like, I surrender. I have no, I have no control. No matter how hard I fight, I'm just not going to win. And that is a learned helplessness. There's some beautiful stories he gives of this in the book. That's a learned helplessness of feeling like no matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference. And I think that is where so many of us are at because we have tried to get better organized. We've tried to do better time management. We've tried to simplify. We've tried to have New Year's resolutions that we didn't follow through with. So we've had so much evidence in our life that makes us feel like no matter how hard we work, it's not going to make a difference. But I think that that is oftentimes because we we haven't said no to anything else. All we're trying to do in in our week is do more. We're just trying to work harder. We're trying to run faster. We're trying to sleep less. All we're trying to do in our new year is be, you know, 
extra from what we were last year, but without being like, well, where where is that extra energy coming? Where is that extra time coming from? It's got to come from something else. So we set ourselves up for failure. In the choosing between the good and the great, one of the lines is, you know, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And I love that because how many things in your life really are a hell yes? Like when someone texts you, there are times when you're like, yeah, I'd like to see that friend. Um, you know, but it's not a, I mean, yes, you want to see them, but there's some story happening in the back of your mind. And it's not that you don't love them. It's that you really are tired. You really were looking forward to a, a night of of rest. You really, but we don't acknowledge that little deep thing because we're just telling ourselves, well, yeah, this is a close friend. So I, I should always want to spend time with them. So I just said yes, where it's different when some friend you haven't seen is in is you know coming in from out of town or offers you a someone offers you a ticket to something and you get the text and you're just like, oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. And you just it's a difference that absolutely that immediate thing. But we don't slow down to really discern the difference between we don't pause. Do I absolutely want to say yes to this? If we are choosing between revenue streams or job opportunities or apartments or you know any myriad of things do i really have a oh my gosh i am so excited about this or have we just made so many choices that we're like yeah that yeah that would be nice yeah that would be good that that's just all we're used to now things are nice things are good there's a lot of things that are nice and good which means there's so much we can say yes to so we just say yes to a lot of things. And then we end up, again, a little mediocre and lukewarm at just having overly full lives. Like that feeling on Thanksgiving when you've just eaten too much. Our lives just kind of feel like that all the time. And people who realize they have a dairy intolerance or a gluten intolerance will say like, I just, my stomach hurt all the time after eating and I didn't know that that wasn't normal. I just thought that's what happened when you ate. I didn't even realize it really hurt because it was just as for as long as I've known, that's the way my stomach felt. I didn't even, but if you have food poisoning, you are aware this is not normal. This level of pain is not weird. But when it's just a low grade, I'm too full, I'm kind of uncomfortable, we just don't notice that. To quote from the book, he says, the Latin root of the word decision, cis or cid, C-I-S or C-I-D, literally means to cut or to kill. Scissors, homicide, fratricide, making the choice to eliminate something good can be painful, but every cut produces joy. Maybe not in the moment, but afterwards, when we realize every moment we've gained to spend on something better. And I have found that to be so true. It is so hard to say no to things, but the more that I do, the more I clear that space in relationships, in work opportunities in goals and expectations for myself, things on my calendar, things in my closet, things cluttering up my home, whatever it is, the more I say no to, I realize that my fear of of saying no, my like, oh, I don't want to part with this thing, that's really where the pain is. Once I've made the cut, I'm like, oh, okay, that really does feel better. That definitely was the right decision. I mean, think back to being in a dating relationship where you were like, 
I just don't think this is right, but I don't have to break up with this person. And then it's going to be this. And then we have the same friends in common. And you do all of that. And then once you actually have the conversation, you feel better the next day. You feel better a couple of weeks later. Like if you knew that it wasn't right, but we can spend way longer fearing having to make that decision than actually doing it. And this is something I've told myself recently is I've looked back at certain examples just in the last six months in my life and said, you know, I fear the moment the, the the anticipation is worse than what actually happens. It's like when I was a kid and I used to ball all the way to the doctor before I was going to have to get a shot. Like I spent so much more time working myself up, making my my body physically miserable from hysterics than the actual pain of the shot, which lasts about five seconds. And I realize now I do that as an adult. It's the fear and the scarcity and the anxiety of having to choose and having to say no and wanting to do less and and parting from that relationship that isn't really making you that happy and cutting off that thing that is good. You just know it's not great. And I realize, gosh, I am spending so much time fearing those decisions. And once I make them, I always feel better. So let me notice that. Let me journal about that. Let me talk to friends in my life about that so that the next time I have that same anxiety come up, I can go back to, you've already seen, you're going to feel better when it's done. Just make the decision in a week instead of a month. Number three, it requires saying no a lot. Being an essentialist requires saying no a lot, both to other people or their asks and to yourself. Now, saying no to other people is harder for some than it is for others. Some people are people pleasers and it is more socially acceptable to say yes, to be helpful, to pitch in, to do your part, to you know, whatever. Reply yes to everything. Can you help with this? Do you want to meet up? Will you be there early? Can you cover this financially? Whatever. You know, can you pitch in financially? So some people really struggle with being a people pleaser and therefore always say yes. I will be honest, I am not this person. I don't know why. I don't know what the opposite of a people pleaser is. I don't know if it goes back to having a more clear sense of self at a younger age for whatever reason. But I tend to not be the people pleaser type that I, I I am willing to say yes to myself over others. But that is a huge percentage of people. My husband is one of those. So knowing if you are that people pleaser, that is a huge fight to have to work on. And he absolutely walks you through that in the book. Um, number two, also in terms of saying no to other people, is as he gives a lot of examples in the book, for a lot of people, this is in your in your work, in your career. I have, I've got too much on my plate. I'm working nights. I'm working weekends. They call me when I'm on vacation. They keep putting more work on my plate. Like I don't have the resources that I need, but I'm afraid if I say no, I can't do that by that deadline. I don't have the resources. I can't do all of that this week. I will get back to that on Monday when I'm in the, back in the office, but right now it's Sunday morning. People are afraid that they will be fired. They will be chastised. They will be disliked. They will not be promoted. They will, you know, all these other things. That is a very valid concern, which, again, he also addresses in the book. Um, and then with other people, we also just have that that fear of missing out. You're not the people pleaser and you're not worried something bad is going to happen in your work like you're going to get fired, but you just you don't want people hanging out without you. You don't want to not get the invite. You're afraid if you don't say yes now, they won't ask later. Or if you say no, then you're going to be home resting by yourself and then being like, oh, but I feel like I'm missing out because they went out tonight. So you're saying no or yes to other people, but really it's about what's happening within yourself. 
And I think ultimately saying no to yourself, I think, and again, I realize I don't have this reality at work because I'm my own boss and I don't have it just in my DNA as a people pleaser. But I still wonder if the saying no to yourself is the hardest, in part because it is subconscious. You don't say it out loud. It's insidious. You don't even notice that when you poured that second glass of wine, what you were saying no to was waking up well-rested. That when you pressed play on that one more episode of Netflix, what you didn't realize you were saying no to was getting a full night of sleep. Like there's these tiny little choices that we make all day that ultimately are saying no to ourselves in some other way by saying yes to how we're spending our time, what we're putting into our bodies, all of these things. So I think it can be so insidious in that tiny way that we don't even notice. And then even when it is more clear, it can feel really hard to say to ourselves, we talked about this a few weeks ago when my friend Brian was um, having a conversation here on the podcast about like him and donuts in his weight loss journey of losing 100 pounds in a year. It was just like he had to say no to himself to donuts. And that just led to meltdown after meltdown. Like that it is so hard because we are fighting our own willpower. It's a battle within ourselves. You're on both sides. It's not me versus my boss, me versus that friend that I want to please, me versus my mother who's passive aggressive and gives me guilt trips, which is not my mother, which is why I use her as an example of that. But it is, I think, even harder when it's we're warring both sides. We're fighting both sides. So how can we win? It can feel like it's a losing battle, but it takes just wisdom and intentionality and maturity to realize it is basically you are fighting your devil and your angel. Like you are fighting between the better and the the lesser parts of yourself. You know, the, the better part of yourself wants to get a full night hour of sleep. The lesser part of yourself wants to watch another episode of Queer Eye. Like, you know, and it's not that it is this horrible thing for you, but it's not the best thing you could be doing with that half hour. Let's be honest. So when you say yes, ask yourself and others, what would I then deprioritize? He talks about this in the book for work, which I think is so genius. If your boss gives you something else on your plate and you don't have time to do everything, you say, yes, you actually can say yes. Yes, I'd love to do that. What should I deprioritize? Because you're acknowledging that that yes means a no to something else. But you don't even have to use the word no and you're getting there. But I realize even to myself, so we are hosting people over here for the Super Bowl. And when Jeremy and I talked about that, I said, hey, do you want to have people, I was like, some friends were asking if we were doing Super Bowl, do you want to do that? He was like, yeah, I want to. Do you want to? I was like, yeah. And I realized without, again, it's subconscious, but what's actually happening in my brain is that I am deprioritizing a Sunday night of rest by having people over. So, which is fine, but I just need to therefore know that. Now, if I had a packed weekend for some other reason, I probably would subconsciously have paused more to be like, I already know I'm going to be pretty tired. But actually, this is an okay week. We don't have a lot of social things going on. And so it felt fine that I'm deprioritizing a quiet, relaxing Sunday night, and I am instead prioritizing a fun night with friends. But if I'd prioritized that seven nights in a row, I would then start to get resentful. I'd start to feel tired. I'd start to feel like I'm going to be stressed on Monday morning. Or if I had something on Monday morning, I think through that before I say yes to the Super Bowl. I just like do a quick mental, you know, 
Like yesterday, I taught at class at 9 a.m. for my mastermind. If I'm doing that on Monday morning after the Super Bowl, I need to do a little bit more pause. Can I prep for that for sure on Friday before I leave the office? Like what all do I have to have set up so that I can get to bed later, I can sleep in later, and I cannot be stressed on Monday morning. But that's a lot of mental gymnastics, right? A lot of times we just, sure, it sounds fun to have people over. We love having people over. Let's do it. But actually, that came about because somebody else asked, hey, are you guys going to do Super Bowl? Okay, that's a yes or a no to someone else. That I didn't come out of my mind. And I, I didn't, didn't not say no because I was like, oh, they're going to be disappointed. It was like, oh, that's a fun idea. Gosh, I hadn't even realized Super Bowl was coming up. You're right. We've thrown a Super Bowl every year. We'd probably love to do that. But realizing that you just need to run it through, what would I then deprioritize? And acknowledging that means last time on Sunday, okay, I'm going to add, I'm going to make sure that I keep some of that self-care on Saturday so that I'm not regretting all of a sudden on Sunday. Why did I have people over? Like we all have those moments, you know, you're like, why did I agree to this? Like, okay, when you're, when you're thinking like an essentialist, you are getting that muscle stronger at thinking through those things, paying more attention to your yeses and your noes so that you have less of those meltdowns where you feel like, you are a victim and your life just happened to you and somehow this all just got out of control, which I think is so many of us so much of the time. All right, final two. Number four is that is truly about less is more in a culture of such more. All of our messages are about we should have more clothes, more, you know, even, even if it's less, it's more. It's more losing weight. We want to weigh less, but it's really more working at weighing less. Having more friends and more social invitations and more money and more status. And we feel like everyone else has more. We feel like they have more friends and more social invitations, even if they actually don't. We feel like they probably have more money and more success, even when they may not feel that we have those things, that they have those things. As opposed to less clutter, less cramming, more spaciousness, and keeping that white space. I mentioned earlier, instead of asking, what do I have to give up? We ask, what do I want to go big on? And then we keep the extra white space and we don't fill it up with those little things. It doesn't mean that it's just a 10% week. Let me put 10% more to this thing I want to go big on. But actually, can I fully take out this thing that's taking 20%. Can I give me? Hmm. Can I give 10% to this bigger thing? And then can I keep 10% of extra white space? McCowan writes, the faster and busier things get, the more we need to build thinking time into our schedules. And the noisier things get, the more we need to build quiet reflection spaces in which we can truly focus. It's about making more space in our life. And I think that is so hard for so many of us. And I get it. Like you are a mom and you're working and you're volunteering at your church and you're trying to get to the gym and you, you know, it's just, we, we all have so many things. I don't, I feel like I don't hear from women that are just like, you know, I've got so much free time. Now, some of the women who listen to this podcast are uh, retired or getting closer to retirement. And in that case, that may be a season of your life when you actually are thinking, what do I want to fill my time with? But for most seasons of life in this day and age, 
we are so overly full and we need more of that space. I realized that I've gotten used to having, quote, something to do every night or weekend. Because for as long as, I mean, for years now, it's like we were wedding planning and then we, then I w- was launching a podcast and then we were moving and decorating and then I was creating the Elegant Excellence Journal and then I was launching the Elegant Excellence Mastermind. And I mean, for years, not only me, but really us as a couple, which is not something Jeremy was used to when it was just him. He was used to having, oh, it's Saturday. I just, I don't have to have a plan. I just chill. And then we started wedding planning and it was like, okay, here's the 28 things we need to do by the end of the day. And we just so got into that rhythm that I am really kind of coming out of that and being like, huh, so it's nighttime and I don't have a thing to do. In the back of my head, I'm not thinking I should get on Instagram and post. I should reply to my DMs. I should clean out my inbox. There's a couple more things I left on my Asana, which is our project management system. I should get to that. Oh, I wanted to reach out to that person. Like, what if I truly was just like, oh, this is my time when I have nothing to do. I'm just going to watch this documentary and I'm just going to solo task. I'm just going to be present with it. I'm just going to cuddle with my husband and watch this documentary instead of also scrolling like Instagram at the same time, instead of also trying to get a few things done. And I'm a little alarmed by... Huh, it is hard for me to not have anything to do. Although I actually, I'm not a workaholic. I love space and rest. It's just that, it's just what I've gotten used to. It's just the muscle memory that I've built up and it's just needing to readjust that um, and and reset it. It's creating buffer in our lives. There is um, a friend of mine years ago quoted essentialism to me and was he said his favorite takeaway from it was that, Basically, every every stress in your life comes from lack of buffer. And I have thought about that so much over the years. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so true. Like, why are you late? You didn't have a buffer. You left right on time instead of leaving 15 minutes early. Why do you why are you stressed financially? Because there was no buffer. You were living right on top of your means and you didn't have anything saved in case of emergency or or in case things didn't go quite as you planned. Why are you burnt out? Because you didn't have any space. You you perfectly scheduled your eight hours a day at work, and yet you have 12 hours of work that you're trying to get done in those eight hours. So of course, you never get there, and there's never any room to breathe and recalibrate and just be like, okay, let me reorganize. Do I need to reprioritize because it's Wednesday and I'm super behind? So what do I need to do? So instead, you just tell yourself, well, I'll just work nights when the kids are down, and then like I'll just work through the weekend. And now, like, why are you snapping? I mean, I even notice this, like, with friends or other relationships. Like, why are you short-tempered? Well, it's because there there hasn't been enough buffer built up. My friends, um, Jesse and Gerard, run a marriage podcast called uh, Marriage is Funny. And they talk about the concept of a of a, uh, the cushion in their marriage. That when they don't have a lot of cushion, that's when things get tough. And the cushion is built up from... Um, time invested together and going on vacation and date nights and quality conversations. But if they go through a season where he's traveling a lot for work and they're super busy and they're kind of ships in the night, the cushion starts to get worn down. And now when you have a conflict or a disagreement, it's just, you know, it's like when the shocks are out in the car and it's like scraping against the pavement as opposed to having that little bounciness that's like, hey, we can take a hit. We can go over this pothole 
And you're not going to hear that screech of metal because we've got that cushion built up. It's building up that buffer in our lives. If we don't have any of that, we keep screeching the pavement because there's no buffer in our finances or in our time or in our to-do list or just that white space in our weeks. How can we add in more white space? And again, that requires doing less. It requires wanting less but better. I want to accomplish less things. I want to be be excellent at less things. I want to experience less things, but I am going to have those experiences and those skills and those people and relationships, whatever. I'm going to have them be richer and better, and they're going to be surrounded by white space that really gives me breathing room in my life. When I picture other people's lives like that, I cannot imagine that they are not more peaceful and joyful, myself included. And that does not mean that I am and there by any means. And our final one is it is about asking the right questions. Again, this is the value to me of the Elegant Excellence Journal and episode 33 of the podcast. Why do things matter? You want more friends in your life. What is it about friendship? What in friendship matters? Is it the amount of time you spend with people? Is it that they are there for you when things are bad? Is it light laughter? Is it deep advice? Like if you had to rank, what is most important? Why does friendship really matter? Because that's going to make a huge difference in how I'm prioritizing it and what my expectations are and whether or not what really matters to me is quality time. Okay, I'm I'm going to inv- make that investment differently than if that really isn't important to me. Maybe I'm just seeing other people on Instagram hanging out, and that's where I'm getting this idea that I need to be spending more in-person time with my friends. But really, that's not what really matters to me. What really matters to me is this. And maybe when I reframe that, you know, actually, I feel pretty great about my friendships right now. I think I was just subconsciously being led down a path that I need more out of these friendships in order to be happy because I picked that up from some, someone else. You know, why does my health matter? If I'm not focused on my health and the way that I'm eating, the way that I'm moving my body, it's because my vision isn't compelling enough. Anything in our life that we are struggling to move forward with, we don't have a compelling enough vision of why it would be worth investing this time, overcoming this resistance. So why does this matter? I have realized, I have really been compelled by this in the last couple of weeks, realizing that I can talk myself into anything. Because everything I'm considering is good. And I realized, I said this to my team. I said, hey guys, you need to not take everything I say at face value and just accept it as the only way forward. Because I'm very smart. I'm a good entrepreneur. I really know our audience. I'm clear about our mission in the world. I'm never going to bring you something where you're like, that's just a dumb idea. I can just tell that that's bad. Like, red flag, saying no to that. Every idea I'm going to bring you is going to be good. And I'm going to sell it to be good. I'm going to really sell you on it because it is good. But is it the greatest? Is it the most exceptional? Is it the highest point of contribution? Is it the number one most powerful thing that we could be doing? And I'm realizing as I look back over the years of my business that there have been Times when decisions were made by me or by other people, by coaches or consultants or partners or people that I brought in, and I realize 
I just kind of accepted it as, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, I really like that. Okay, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I'll listen to you. I'll, I'll implement that. And realizing, actually, I don't know if that was the right answer, but I didn't ask more questions because it sounded great. It made a lot of sense. And you know what it was? Or I should say, it sounded really good. It sounded really good. And it did make a lot of sense. But was it the absolutely most exceptional thing that we could be doing? When I think back to my musical theater career, I had this self-awareness that I, I was good. You know, I was in the most competitive city in the world for my industry, and I was very blessed. I did Broadway tour. I did the Radio City Rockettes. I worked regionally. I was competitive. I wasn't delusional. But I also felt like there were, I was, I was mostly good. There were some things that I was great at, certain genres, certain styles. I was exceptional as a tap dancer. I knew that. But overall, I was just like, I am not, I don't, I'm not exceptional. I am not exceptional at singing, at flexibility, at modern, at like all these just other things. And I, I think I had that awareness, like I can be, and it wasn't even like a conscious thing where I thought I'm going to go do another career, but it was a thought that I had that I think somewhere along the way, as I launched a business and started to go down this path, I think I started to be aware I can be exceptional at being a creative entrepreneur. Like I was really good at musical theater and I showed that by succeeding in that industry in a way that very few people do, but there was a next level that I knew was really exceptional. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I am going to get there. And it's that little level of nuance in asking the questions that I think so few people ask. So I want to encourage all of us that essentialism is asking deeper questions. And that doesn't always mean that we're going to figure out the answer when we sit down or this month, or this quarter, or this year. I can see that after five years of living this and studying this, I am still just being gobsmacked some days by, I never thought about it that way. Or, wait, I think I'm seeing this in a whole new light. And to me, that is exciting in life because it says, this is rich. This is important. This is powerful. The things that matter most in life are not simple. If we all could just agree if it was super clear what what the deal was with religion and spirituality, we'd just all be on the same page. But it's not. It's so complex and nuanced and there's so much to it that we all have these vast and varied opinions. There's other things that are just really clear, you know? I don't know. How do you get a driver's license? It's a it's a 10-step process. We've all, we've we've nailed that down. Um uh, murder. We're not good with murder. Murder. We've we're all on board with that. We're it's it's a black and white issue, and we've got it. But the things to me in life that we talk about on this podcast are about all of the gray area in the middle, where there aren't easy answers, and it is a journey that we are on, and it is about being able to look back a year from now and say, you know, I've come a long way. I'm I'm further than I was a year ago, and and I'm proud of where I'm at, and now. As I look to the future, what am I going to do to get even further, even closer to where I want to be a year from now? What are the next steps that I can take? The author says, anyone can talk about the importance of focusing on the right things that matter most. 
And many people do. But to see people who dare to live it is rare. I say this without judgment. We have good reasons to fear saying no. We worry we'll miss out on a great opportunity, disappoint someone we respect or like. And I, Hillary, would add in, we're afraid we'll make the wrong choice. So we'd rather not make one at all. An essentialist to me is something that you are. It's a lifestyle. It's an approach to life that for me is very in line with elegant excellence and being royal, the other lifestyles and states of being that I've shared with you here on the podcast. The Dalai Lama says, if one's life is simple, contentment has to come. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. And I want to be so honest that I would not say my life is simple. I would simply say that it is more simple. I have made it more simple over these past five years of the journey, and I continue to make it simpler, to seek how I can make it simpler. And each time I do, I get happier. My relationships get better. My health improves. My team is happier. My marriage is better. My anxiety is lower. All the things that matter to us, I see in my life improve the more I become an essentialist, the more I work to simplify, the more white space I create by asking better questions. And I hope that you will feel and see the same. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately, if you were following me on Instagram over the weekend, is the Netflix show Cheer. Now, let me tell you why. So first off, I, as you know, as I said, used to be a dancer. And years ago, there was a show on making the Dallas Cowboys cheerleader squad. And I used to love just watching cheerleading competitions when I'd find them on like ESPN2 randomly on a Saturday or whatever. Um, oh, fun fact. My entire life mission was based on my babysitter, Amy Wilson, when I was in elementary school. And Amy was everything I wanted to be when I grew up, which included not having any cavities and being a cheerleader. Um, This might have been my mother's obsession with having good teeth. Um, And I am proud to say that I do not have any cavities. Sadly, though, I did not become a cheerleader. So cheerleading was something that I really wanted to do, and we just did not have a good squad. And it was like not worth it in high school. And then when it became really good, I was already in theater and yada, yada. So I see previews for this and I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Like I loved that Dallas Cowboy cheerleader show. I watched it on an airplane one time and I was like, this is so fun. Again, it's my world. I'm just watching people audition and they really want it and, you know, whatever. I was not prepared for the depth and the power, however, of this show. And before I realized that it was the same producer, I was like, this is reminding me of Last Chance You. And Last Chance You was a Netflix show a few years ago about one of my other loves, college football. And again, love college football, love the football, want to hear the behind the scenes. But that show was so powerful because of the students that it was about, the stories that it was about, um, their their backgrounds, understanding um, just socioeconomic challenges and racial challenges and the adults that worked with these kids and fought for these kids. It was such so eye-opening about the state of our educational system that these kids would get to this junior college and just 
didn't know how to take tests, didn't like they'd been passed along throughout the system because they were just good sports players. There was just so much to it. And I loved the depth of it. Well, turns out that same producer made cheer and I was not ready for it. I was not ready for the tears and the compelling storylines. And I, I mean, I'm just going to say it's a six episode show and the finale does not disappoint. I can't tell you the last time that I've cried so hard at something. I cried harder watching Cheer than I did at Little Women. And for anyone who's seen Little Women, it as um as Jude Law would say in in the holiday, um, it's a weepa, it's a weepa. The woman behind me at Little Women, I mean, obviously something different was happening in her life. She was like hysterically sobbing, like I've never heard anyone in a the theater. And yet I cried la- uh, harder at Cheer. Um, and also just. Fun fact from one of our listeners' cousin is Lexi on Cheer, uh, one of our Instagram followers. And she says that Lexi's doing really well after the show. So those of you who did watch, I would just like you to know that Lexi's doing well. Um, I have, of course, stalked all of them on Instagram. Um, It looks like Morgan has a cute boyfriend. Uh, Jerry is popping up on memes, obviously, just like how amazing is Jerry? Um, So truly, I think it is a, again, like I said earlier with the book, I try not to be like, everyone has to do this. Guys, you do have to read Essentialism. I'm just saying. I'm not giving up on that one. But cheer. I'm not saying everyone needs to see it. But it was um, lovely and delightful and really gives you an insight in for, I would assume, for many of us, into worlds that we are just not um, familiar with and just was was the perfect weekend companion when my husband was away skiing with his groomsmen. So that's what I was up to. And I would love to hear and see and share with you what else I am up to. So please come follow along with Instagram. I am over there on IG stories all the time and replying to you guys so frequently in uh, DMs. So after listening to the podcast episode, always head over to Instagram where we can connect more and I can get to know your face and your name and we can hang out every day of the week until I see you right back here next Wednesday with Grace and Gumption. Till next Wednesday.